There's many, many um, infections that people will have without knowing. Um, and I don't know, giving a percentage, well, I'd say 100% of people have um, some sort of stealth infection, but it depends on the person and, and it depends on the person's constitution and their, things like their genetic um, susceptibility. Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Welcome to Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm Nathan Rose, and with me today is a naturopath from the Sunshine Coast, Amina East Hillier. Welcome, Amina. Thank you, Nathan. Now, we've tried about four times to get started, and I think this is where we're finally on it with the technology issues. Um, also, I had an infection the other week, which is ironic that we couldn't catch up, but we're here to talk about chronic infections and um, chronic illnesses. So just a bit of a background for the listeners. You're, you've, um, you know, well recognized now in the field for chronic infection, Lyme-like illness, and treating these uh, newer entities like chronic inflammatory response syndrome, uh, lectured us domestically, but also um, through Europe recently. Uh, and one of the reasons I've reached out to you is because um, as a naturopath, we don't always have the, the tools maybe like an integrative doctor may possess for testing and um, therapies like antibiotics or using binders to help with uh, biotoxins. So with all that in mind, we thought we'd get you on, on the show to show you how you've been successfully navigating this area. Now, before we dive into all that, perhaps you just give us a bit of a background about how, how you've come to now be working in this field of um, chronic disease. Yeah, sure. So uh, started about 15 years ago, I was working in a medical center with um, medical doctors who were specializing in chronic fatigue. Um, and we had a couple of patients that came in with uh, Lyme borreliosis from one was from South Africa, Germany, and I think Canada. And so just looking at that, just um, I guess the word got out as it does on social media. And we just started getting more patients that had um, chronic fatigue, pain, um, inflammation generally, and, you know, sort of brain and, and um, neurodegenerative type symptoms. And I guess people just kept coming and, and we just got a name for the, the, you know, clinic and I branched off to do my own thing later and just got more and more into it. So treating chronic fatigue associated with things like Borreliosis, but also, you know, viruses and started looking at lots of other different stealth infections and it's just sort of evolved and, and now it's, yeah, it's an area that I've just, I've had to really research in my own time um, and study and as more patients have come with more presenting symptoms, just sort of looking at and, and a lot of um, documenting of obviously my, my patient's symptoms, they all do comprehensive symptom diaries and so forth. So just putting it all together and, and realizing, wow, there's actually quite a lot we can do here. Oh, fascinating. Uh, I'm glad to hear that, yeah, you're getting the, the great results um, and obviously almost been self-taught along the way. So you've um, been broadcasting this um, position about stealth infections for a while uh, and getting amazing results in patients. So um, there's a bit of a sort of a murky area that the stealth infection, um, can you describe your definition or sort of working model of a, a stealth infection? Well, yeah. So stealth is, is meaning sort of hidden or, or undetected.
infected. It's it's something that's it's an infection that's not going to be randomly picked up in normal blood tests. So your normal bloods will um, from the patient will look perfectly fine. Um, and we call stealth, or I call stealth infections, infections that are not picked up in those tests. Often they're not unbalancing your normal blood markers. Um, yet the patient is sick, and they often are presenting with symptoms such as fatigue, chronic fatigue, pain, and often underlying fevers. So not always the case, but um, can be fevers, just night fevers, or and not associated with hormones and menopause. Of course, you've got to rule those out. Um, and not always having fevers, but they're just, we know that patients have these underlying infections. Maybe they're white blood cells may be a little bit lower or there's some low inflammatory markers. And upon further testing, sure enough, we see a lot of these underlying stealth infections are present. Okay. So it's not just that the, the, the pathogen is evading the immune system. It's maybe the tools we're using to assess the immune system isn't picking up those pathogens. So it's a, it's a bit of a, a broad term about patients that have maybe gone through the conventional test and failed to detect anything, yet they're still unwell, um, and you've ruled out other um, drivers and contributors to the fatigue, like hormones and thyroid, et cetera, um, but there's still this suggestion of infection. Yeah, that's right, because we know, like, for example, Borreliosis or Borrelia are not um, often picked up in blood tests because they're not found in the blood. They're often in long-term chronic um, Borreliosis, they're going to be, um, the Borrelia is going to be in the cyst form or biofilm forms or deep within the collagenous tissue, spinal fluid, or would have already crossed the brain barrier, the blood brain barrier. So um, there's different forms of bacteria that often go, that are stealth. Um, and things like, you know, your viruses like the Epstein Barr virus may be in a latent form, but it may be in, um, it, it can still actually get reactivated, causing a lot of symptoms as well. So there's a lot of infections, unless you actually know what you're testing, things like mycoplasma, chlamydia, pneumonia, Bartonella, toxoplasmosis, they're all infections that do um, appear quite frequently in patients with these types of symptoms, but they're not tested for. And unless you actually test for them or you know what you're looking for, you're not going to get them, you know, you're not going to see what the results are. Okay. And so where do you start? Um, say a patient presents, uh, do you have um, some common signs and symptoms that, that might be Bartonella versus mycoplasma? Um, or do you just run a, a battery of uh, tests? How do you start navigating through a patient that presents with fatigue? Well, if the patient hasn't had um, previous tests, I'm quite lucky. I get to work with a lot of integrated doctors that have um, often already presented. They've already done a lot of testing on the patients. So we usually have a whole plethora of stealth infections that they're dealing with. But if you're starting from scratch, it's really a case of really looking at the patient's symptoms and not just what they're presenting with now, but looking at the cycles of symptoms. So, right. for example... Yeah. Um, Borreliosis might present um, flare-up every four weeks. A Bartonella infection may flare-up every two weeks. Something like Babesia, which is a protozoa, um, similar to malaria but is tick-borne, can actually flare-up every four to eight days. And, and that's a sort of infection that can present with the, the night sweats. Um, and it doesn't have to be drenched like malaria. It can just be that their head gets really hot and sweaty on the pillow or they just know they have to take a couple of layers of clothing. Um, 
So it's it, it's about looking at the cycles of the symptoms is really important. And I think another area that's really important is is doing a comprehensive consultation and asking all of the right questions so that we know, you know, we've got a really good idea on the patient's history. So it's about, you know, asking the right things. Sure. Um, and how prevalent do you think this is? I mean, you might obviously attract people that um, have a higher prevalence of infection, but any estimates on how common these infections are? That, Like a lot of these infections sound almost exotic and um, we might get into the, the Lyme controversy later on, but are they more prevalent than people may um, think or is it a, uh, a case of rule everything out else first and that um, may be an infection once you start diving into it? Oh, look, without a doubt, I'm sure every single human walking on the planet will have some hidden health self-infections. I mean, you know, just for example, the viruses, Epstein-Barr virus, 95% of people, you know, present with the IgG antibodies, um, knowing, showing that they have had the infection in the past. Um, things like toxoplasmosis, I've heard with research anywhere from 50% to 90% of people have had the infection at some point. Um, and many, many people, I think three out of four people um, will have the herpes, uh, the HPV virus, um, herpes simplex one and two, very, very common. So, you know, there's, there's many, many um, infections that people will have without knowing. Um, and I don't know, giving a percentage, well, I'd say 100% of people have um, some sort of stealth infection, but it depends on the person and, and it depends on the person's constitution and the things like their genetic um, susceptibility, whether they have the, you know, genes that enables them to detox well, you know, there's a whole MTHFR um, type genes and the, um, and then the, there's the whole load of the heavy metals, um, and the gut dysbiosis and the stress load that the person's gone through and, and adrenal depletion and whether they're mineral deficient um, and, and other things that will cause inflammation. All of these factors are going to be um, uh, contributing to how well a person um, deals with their infections. So if someone has a, a heavy load on the body, then they're going to obviously um, present with a lot of the symptoms of the infections and, and they're not, the body's not going to be able to deal with it so well. Sure. So not only... So infection doesn't synonymously mean they're going to have symptoms, but um, as a holistic practitioner, I sense you're, you're looking for... Uh, factors that may um, heighten or exacerbate this infection or make it essentially an issue for that person? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think many people, uh, more, way more than we would imagine, would be infected with Borrelia, for example, um, worldwide. But it's, and there's, of course, you know, hundreds of types of Borrelia, but um, a lot of people are very healthy. They have the infections and they don't seem to have any um, symptoms. I, I know lots of patients around here, there's a lot of people on the Sunshine Coast with um, water tanks and who have blastocystis yeah. and diamantometer parasites. And yet, you know, they don't seem to have symptoms so well, whereas someone else can have blastocystis and have really bad gut pains and, you know, it can really affect them. Yeah, absolutely. Makes a lot of sense. All right, well, let's uh, have a look at testing now because... It, I think that's important to keep in mind. Um, so sometimes you might test positive. It doesn't mean it's an issue. So I'd like to see how you um, uh, 
you know, put that in the context of the patient. But first of all, let's let's look at uh, detecting pathogens. Um, so where do you start then? Um, say a patient presents, they've done the, the standard blood works, you're suspicious of infection. Uh, do different infections call for different tests? How, does it, how do you sort of start un unravelling this? Well, like I said before, it is the questionnaire. It, it, it's asking the right questions. So I would always, you know, see the, the obvious question of when did you first start feeling ill? Um, but we'd go back, we'd take that further. So and usually that could be a particular time. So it might be, you know, they were in Bali, they picked up a parasite or they were out bushwalking and they may have got bitten by a tick or, you know, they were out. I had a patient the other day that um, had a, she was in Thailand in a, a canoe and fell out into a river in Thailand and got a, a few nasty bacterial infections and was never right since. Um, and so it's asking the questions like, um, you know, have you had some sort of parasitic exposure that you're aware of? Um, always ask about animals. So, for example, have you been um, scratched by cats? There's a lot of infections like Bartonella um, toxoplasmosis that can be caused from um, being around cats. Um, asking even horses, there's viruses that, you know, horses can, like hedrovirus can be passed on to humans. Um, so always ask the questions. I had a boy in recently who had the Lissa virus, which is from bats, which isn't very common, but he had bats living in his attic and turned out the bats, there must have been some contact with the urine or something, and he got very sick from that. So, you know, it's always good to ask, have, have the, has the person been exposed to animals or um, other some, some sort of um, exposure and of course we'd ask about the mold and all of those aspects and then the history for example have they had operations did they have a cesarean and did they get an infection did they get an infection from a you know a, a, a tool injury and and they they ended up getting having to have antibiotics for something so any infections in the past any operations any surgery whether they have any metal pins or plates um, I always ask the question about their oral microbiome, so whether they've had tooth infections in the past, um, teeth that needed to be pulled out from, you know, toothaches, that sort of thing. And there's often um, associations with a lot of the mouth microbiome um, and, and then going into gut dysbiosis contributing to that, especially if they have the poor stomach acid levels. So um, I, I go into as much detail as that and even asking past from, you know, when they were born, sort of how their birth was, whether they had chronic tonsillitis as a child, did they have a lot of strep throat, did they have a lot of antibiotics? Um, and just, yeah, putting it all together, so that gives me a really good idea of what they may have been exposed to, and, and also the countries that they've been to. You know, if someone's lived in Papua New Guinea or Africa, they, they could be exposed to some parasite that we're not even um, aware of at this point. Wow, that's very comprehensive. Do you, is that a, like a tick and flick questionnaire do you send out first or um, do you go through all those face to face? It sounds like no. a, a long list and <laughs> I'd probably forget a lot of them if I was doing it. No, I, I, I guess I just have done it so, so often much. now. Yeah, it's yeah, just, yeah. yeah you, just, you just basically go through, ask, you know, what countries you know, have you been to? Did you get sick in any of them? You know, did you have barley belly? Did you did you um, get a flu in Canada or after that forest walk or, you know, those sorts of things. And, and obviously what 
um, insects. They may have been bitten by ticks, mosquitoes, um, spiders, anything like that. So they're all things, you know, that, so when I have my, I have my jigsaw puzzle template by the side of me when the patient comes in. And of course I'm typing out my notes, but any key points I put in the jigsaw. So the jigsaw will have a hundred pieces on it and I start filling those pieces and I have little clusters of areas that they sort of go together. So that's how my brain sort of works and puts it all together. And I, I look at the key areas and also ask about, you know, have you had herpes? Have you had cold sores um, on the mouth, uh, genital herpes? Um, did you have chicken pox as a kid? You know, measles, mumps, rubella. All of these are pieces of the puzzle that need to be taken into consideration when you're looking at chronic stealth infections. Um, because, you know, they're all possibilities that it's never one stealth infection that someone's suffering from. Yeah. Even you know, your typical Lyme-like illness in Australia, we know there's Borrelia, um, often Bartonella, Mycoplasma, um, Rickettsia, and there's lots of different types of Rickettsia, and these are all your tick-borne infections. Um, Ehrlichia, Anaplasma, I mean, that's just all bacterial um, and protozoa things that can be caused by ticks, and then there's all the viruses that can be caused by ticks. So just from one bite, you could be exposed to many different types of um, infections, co-infections, and then there's the whole bacterial infection or, or a, a recent infection then that will trigger a latent, for example, viral infection to start expo or expressing itself and then presenting more symptoms. Wow. <laughs> Anyone to... Um, nobody, everybody's not uh, 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 ill with all these infections. There's so many vectors and so many possibilities, but it does show that the immune system already fights things off and... Uh, it's a collection of how well we're coping with stress, etc., which we'll get into. So, just from there, then, how do you use, um, you know, laboratory objective tests such as um, antibodies, etc., for confirming your diagnosis? How do how do you sort of piece that together then? So. Um there's a, quite a few different labs you can use. And, and usually my patients have already had right. quite a few of these tests done already. But what um, the labs that um, I've used in the past, and depending on the, I guess, the collections of symptoms that the person has makes me think, you know, I think they might have, for example, mycoplasma, Bartonella, and your basic Borrelia um, can be tested through um, Australian Biologics in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, the, there's Australian Rickettsial Lab. And they do a basic panel that's a few types of Rickettsia, Babesia, Bartonella, Q fever, and Borrelia. If you go through that lab you, and with a GP, you can actually get a Medicare rebate. So I think it's about 50% off. So they do a, a basic panel, which is about $450, and you can get money back on Medicare. So that's quite helpful for people to know. Um, Armin labs are, I, I think, a very very, um, very detailed with their testing, and they'll actually do pretty much everything, like Borrelia, Ehrlichia, Bartonella, Babesia, Chlamydia, Mycoplasma, Toxoplasma, um, and they also do a whole bunch of um, viruses, so cytomegalovirus, the HSV, and the Epstein-Barr, and, and they do like the Elispot, and they also do the, the early antibodies, and they do, with the Elispot, it's actually the lytic which is the active form and the latent form right. of Stain-Barr virus. So um, I think it's always a good idea to sort of, you know, be in contact with those labs and just get their information and, and then you can sort of tailor make, a, you know, a testing list of what you need. Um, 
And sometimes uh, there's quite a few of those tests that can be done through um, the normal Australian Medicare. The Borreliosis ones, I don't think are that effective, but I know mycoplasma, um, chlamydia, pneumonia, Bartonella, um, they can all be, and of course the viruses can be tested um, pretty accurately. That's great. There's uh, plenty there to choose from and uh, heaps of options. So now we've got a bit of a working diagnosis and maybe this is where not having the ability to prescribe antibiotics isn't an issue because it sounds like the way you approach the therapy isn't just there's a, a pathogen we need to seek and destroy with exogenous agents. Um, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, you have this more holistic approach where you're pulling a lot more levers and allowing the body to help um, fight the infection or almost live you know, synergistically with the infection. So, yeah, can you walk me through how you go about managing a patient um, with an identi identified pathogen? Absolutely, because, you know, as, as we've just discussed, there's, there can be so many stealth pathogens, and it's going to be, it really is impossible to know all of the stealth pathogens that we're going to be harboring within our body. We know we have, you know, thousands of types of bacteria um, anyway, uh, and viruses and different things, um, candida and so forth. So, we just, okay, so we see the patient, we know that yes, they ha they're presenting with this whole load of list of symptoms um, and often have been presenting with for quite a few years. Um, we get their basic blood tests. Uh, and the when I say basic blood tests, I want to know um, what their white blood cells are doing. So full blood count is very important. Check their liver enzymes, make sure that their, their liver's not already under stress and their cholesterol. And also looking at their iron and, and ferritin to make sure, you know, that they have good, you know, blood building um, nutrients that's in, essential for the immune system. And of course, thyroid. Thyroid, I think, is a massive um, um, essential to be able to check just obviously not just the TSH, T3, T4, but the thyroid antibodies, because things like that, we need to make sure that if, if the person, you, you can't just start treating the infection if the person's thyroid antibodies are you know, really high and sensitive. So when we've done all that, what I do is um, look at their most prominent symptoms. I'd say 99% of the time they need inflammation or anti-inflammatory support. So that is something I always start with because I found that if in, in the past, I have done this back in the very early years, if you go straight in with the antibacterial, antiparasitic um, type medications without supporting the body first, the patient will likely get quite sick, um, can have you know, what we call a Herxheimer reaction where the, the, the die-off or the lipopolysaccharides of the bacteria can actually make the person feel more um, sick. So make sure that we've really got the inflammation under control. So I'll often start um, with anti-inflammatory support initially, so just basic herbs uh, and make sure we work through diet as well. So obviously the diet's got to be as anti-inflammatory as possible. So preferably gluten-free, dairy-free if possible, no alcohol, coffee, that sort of thing, and, and have it as, as natural and as alkalizing. So lots of vegetables, because obviously we've got to really support the gut and the microbiome. Um, and I often do a microbiome test as well, just yeah. looking at... Yeah. Um, I think 80% of the immune system starts within the gut, so that's obviously really important. And it does give the patient a very good um, foundation. And if a patient is limited on, on a budget, I probably would rather do 
gut microbiome testing than looking at different stealth infections right. that you may right. or may not get the positive result and it may not be completely accurate. Whereas a microbiome test, at least you know, we know where we need to start. Oh. So that's something that I work on. And then we, um, oh, we I look at looking at um, nervous system support. So if the person's got a lot of anxiety and, um, you know, if they're not sleeping, obviously that's got to be, we've got to work on the sleep pattern, um, look at their circadian rhythm. If the person's has a lot of anxiety, nervous system palpitations, those sort of symptoms, and we need to give them a lot of um, nervous system support. So you heard like chamomile, calendula, passion flower, um, bagel skull cap, um, St. John's wort. Um, and then I start working at the same time, I'll be looking at how I'm going to start detoxing the patient. So um, I use a lot of turmeric, which is anti-inflammatory, but also will start working with the liver. And most of my patients do get St. Mary's thistle or Silymarin. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess I'm looking at all systems and making sure we've got the basic foundation that everything sort of calms down a little bit. If they're, you know, if they're presenting with pain, um, rashes, anxiety, you know, severe brain fog, it's clear then the inflammation is is pretty high so we've just got to sort of tone that all down a little bit and and build a bit of a foundation first yeah that's that makes a lot of sense do you, are you measuring any um biomarkers for inflammation or are you mostly basing it off signs and symptoms mostly off signs and symptoms but if if the patient is keen to then i do obviously we look at the basic c-reactive protein yeah. in, in the essr but um if if Usually they're perfectly fine because that's only really high in um, in acute inflammation. But if someone does want, there's a cytokine profile that we do with Nutripath. Um, obviously, look at things like you know if the ferritin levels are high or some of the liver enzymes are high or those sorts of things that can indicate inflammation. Um, and it depends on what what I'm. I mean, I don't always do the cytokine panel with Nutripath, but it, it can be helpful. Um, and also something for the patients to work on. You know, I mean, they, they usually know that they have inflammation because they can feel it. Yeah. You can see it in the sim you can see it usually in their their face, and you know. Yeah, sure. Um, and question without notice, we we've recently been looking at the SPMs, and I know you've um, had a bit of a trial with them. And uh, I think there initially there was some confusion because they help resolve inflammation. Um, people might have been confused with them being immunosuppressive, but the data on um, at least from the animal data, using it during infection seems to enhance the body's ability to clear infection. You've had a bit of a play around with these SPMs in um, some of your patients. Can you give us a bit of an update on how you're finding those? Yeah, sure. And I feel I've, I've been getting really good results with them. So um, one guy I had who had Ly has Lyme borreliosis and the worst infection, the worst it was infecting was his knees. So he would get really bad chronic knee pain, um, terrible to sit down and, and to stand up. So um, within about four weeks of him, he had quite a high dose of three per day and he noticed a significant difference and he said his knee pains were really pretty much gone he still had a few rashes and there were still other symptoms but it's an ongoing we're still treating him now so that was really good and another patient I had um, had an ongoing chest infection that was mycoplasma so mycoplasma pneumoniae and it affected him in the way of he had a lot of um he had a cough, but it was just always, it wasn't like a, an infectious cough. It was just an ongoing cough. He was coughing up phlegm, but just clear phlegm. And he 
um, just felt it was always around his chest area and he had a lot of fatigue and rashes and all of those symptoms did subside. And another patient I've got is um, his psoriasis. And initially it did um, really help and then he's sort of gone on to a bit of a plateau. So we're still working with that because I think there's a lot of other detoxing doing with him at the moment. So... Um, but yeah, definitely seeing something. Actually, one of the patients had a bit of bursitis and noticed that that had cleared up as well. So, yeah, very, so that's something. Yeah, initially, mm. great. So yeah, you cover off um, supporting inflammation, nervous system. I think it's really important. Probably under recognised for um, chronic infection, detox. One area that I'm always curious on the the little research that exists is quite. Um, quite fascinating with uh, Professor Garth Nicholson simply um, supporting mitochondrial function uh, in the presence of infection seems to have pretty uh, remarkable effects on fatigue. How do you, um, do you consider like energy production mitochondrial support as part of your treatment protocol? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'll actually do quite a few oats of the organic um, acid testing yeah. and, and often yeah. patients come up with the significant mitochondrial markers some of them will be deficient or super high um so of course that's it goes without saying i mean all patients um will get some sort of magnesium because i've, I've yet to find a patient that's that's not needing magnesium um of course essential fatty acids play a role there as well with mitochondrial support, zinc. Um, and every patient must be on their basic B vitamins because that's your, your basic nutrients and, and CoQ10. So they're the basic nutrients that I will use to be supporting the mitochondria. And I think that's just something that, yeah, it just goes without saying when we're working with these types of patients because the fatigue is such a prominent factor. So, yeah, definitely. Okay. Now, on top of that, uh, say there is a... A predominant infection how specific do you get with your therapies like if it's a i don't know say a lyme disease and um it's in the cyst form or you suspect biofilms there's a lot of um mechanistic data out there about all these intricacies of different infections and you could potentially be um you know very selective in how you you treat these infections with different uh, based off mechanisms how, how deep do you go into that does that part of you know, is that a consideration of yours in practice that you need to really tailor it based on the infection? Well, I do like to because I, I really do like to get as many as much information as I can. So um, it, it's very rare would someone just have Borrelia. So I'm always assuming yeah. that's for infections. But uh, and if someone has um, if someone has an acute um, tick-borne infection and something you know that and it's very clear that they've just sort of been infected have the rash um and, and they're presenting with the aches and pains and it's been within a few weeks then i will treat that as an acute and i tend to go in with quite high doses of astragalus high doses of vitamin c echinacea andrographis siberian ginseng those types of herbs um and i i, I tend to use um as high a therapeutic dose as i can um and it's a very, it, it, that's really just working on the immune system um, as much as possible. And at the same time, if, if it's pretty, you know, positive, the person has the infection, then I will definitely encourage antibiotic support at that time as well. Um, and, and that treatment could last for six months, yeah. just to make sure that their immune system's really supported. Um, and, 
if they have chronic symptoms, symptoms that have, have gone on for you know more than six months to a year or longer, sometimes I get patients that have been sick for 10, 20 years, that's a chronic infection. So therefore, I, I don't go in with those high therapeutic um, herbs, as I mentioned before, just to avoid the Herxheimer, because the patient's not ready for that. They have a lot more, um, there's a lot more systems that have been affected by now. So in that way, um, for Borrelia, I, I go in easy. I go in sort of using herbal medicine in lower doses to start. So they've already, assuming I've already done the anti-inflammatory anti, um, support, they've been on some liver detox support for a while. And I'm just talking things like, you know, using turmeric, N-acetylcysteine, amino acids, um, St. Mary's Sissel, for example, Shisandra, Globartichoke. And then... They've got all their adrenal support, so they've been on there with thania and their rhodiola and, and so forth. Then um, I'll start using the antibacterial, antimicrobial herbs in lower doses and just increase them slowly and be very mindful and, and really monitor the patient. And I leave it to them as well. Like some of them, I'll just start them in dropper dose and gingers, those sorts of herbs, um, so forth. I, I find that, um, yeah, they just tend to be getting better and when they have an exposure to mold they can feel it straight away so if they go back to their old house or something they'll know their symptoms will flare up and they might take a step back um i do use binders but i use the i'll do um a bit of diatomaceous earth um bentonite clay um there's quite a few different ones that i found helpful and you know i don't know to what capacity are they binding to all of the mycotoxins i don't know if there's an exact way of being able to measure that exactly but the patients are getting better so i've been using a, li a little bit of the clino um clinoctilite which is like a natural zeolite food yeah and i found that that's actually been quite gentle on patients so just giving them like one tablet three times a day between meals um and they feel you know they're like when they when patients are very sensitive they know when they're taking something new, the effect that it has on them. And I, I've not had any um, side effects or any problems with that. And, and yeah, that's all I can say, really. Sure. And how much of a, did you dip into the, the, the uh, SERS testing? So, um, again, you can do a whole battery of tests, um, but there's like the, the visual contrast sensitivity, the HLA. You can do the biomarkers like TGF beta. Um, What's your take? Like, do you feel like you need to do all that, or just you get a bit of a sense there's mold, and if we remove them from the mold and try some of these natural binders, that's typically enough um, testing and therapy. Um, so, as I said, the Schumacher protocol can be quite long. Um, I'm just curious to know how's a naturopath, how much of that do you um, employ, and then rely on all those other levers you just mentioned to have a lot of benefit as well. It really depends on the patient because. I must say, most of my patients, they come in and they, a lot of them really know what they want. They actually, they've already done a lot of research and, and right. they're pretty right. savvy. I'd say a lot of my patients already, you know, they're familiar with the Schumacher protocol. And if they want to come in and do mold testing, then, you know, they, they'll tell me, they're like, I want to do the mycotoxin, I want to do ERMI, you know, hurts me, all of those testing the mold within their home. Um, and so if, if patients want it, of course, I'll just do it because, you know, they've done a lot of their own research. Um, if it's a patient that's just 
you know, new to the whole mold thing and I'm telling them about their mold that's in their house, you know, how it may be affecting them, then I do often, I do the ERMI test in a lot of places because I think if it's their own home, it's good for them to be mindful of, of um, you know, that their home may be toxic, then they might need to not be there anymore or, or find some way of remediation or something for their, their mold issues. Um, yeah, I don't do a lot of those inflammatory markers, like I said, the C4A and the, the, the VEGF and the MMP9. I think they can be helpful, but they're not something that I, I go straight for because otherwise you, you kind of really need to then retest really to see if they're better. And they are quite pricey. So it's something I, I, I tend to rather have the patient spend the money on, you know, good food supplements and try and work out to get away from the mold and work on the inflammation that they're obviously um, suffering from in that way. Yeah, yeah, makes perfect sense. All right, um, so that helps really navigate the, the SIRS plus the infection. Um, and it, yeah, to me, it really sounds like it, it's quite encouraging that a lot of the real fundamentals of naturopathy particularly um, seem to still be critical even in this 21st century when we've got all these new tests and potentially um, these new drivers like mold that you still can have a lot of confidence in the real um, foundational support of nervous system and inflammation um, any other we'll wrap it up in a moment any other sort of closing remarks you have around, around that well it, it, it's i mean i think a lot of the tests can definitely be helpful and Often I'll have patients that will come in with wads and wads of tests that they have had over the years and often they've gone down the, the, the mold path or and so they come in and they've got their neuroquant scans and they've got their reduced hippocampus and their, you know, inflamed amygdala and, you know, you can actually see, you know, that there is inflammation um, affecting the brain and for example. And and sometimes they have the Marcon's test, so showing that the um the staphylococcus in the nasal area and I guess when I'm looking at that, you know, I don't tend to retest them because, again, it is all comes down to quite a lot of money. Yeah. But, um, yeah, just being mindful of those things as well. Is So then I would work on more specific herbs for the Marcons, for example. or And if they have the HLA genotypes, I like them to get the profile that makes sure they don't have the um, celiac and that as well. But, I mean, those, those tests can be all very helpful. Sometimes the VCS, the visual contrast screening test, um, can be helpful, but it just basically says yes, they they have, you know, biotoxins present or not. Um, so yeah, I mean that's a cheap test. That's not that's quite easy to do. So that you, I do recommend that one if they want to do that. So they they can all be helpful for sure, but it's not something that I would be you know absolutely have to do this. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you're using the tools you think um, best fit the patient at the time being mindful yeah. of cost, but also having that confidence of our foundational um, therapies and I suppose almost uh, philosophy can really go a long way, even, as I said, in these times when we know all the, the detailed, intricate biochemistry. It's uh, no point in treating, you know, if someone's taking some heavy medications and yet they're constipated and they're not having a good bowel mm, movement mm. day not eating vegetables and they're stressed out to the max and so they're also on sleeping tablets and anti-anxiety tablets and they've got high blood pressure and you know all of these things are really basic things that we have to sort of navigate through I think to it's quite amazing that 
it, it can actually be really quite simple, even though some of the cases that are really complex, some of them come to me with these wads of results of different things. And it's like, wow, and has anyone ever looked at your diet? No. Okay. And so you don't eat vegetables, you eat bread every day and you're, you know, addicted to coffee. So, you know, there, there are, that you do get those types of patients. And then there are the extreme that uh, the diets are fantastic because they've been working on that as well. So you just got to look at all the re real key naturopathic foundations for sure. Absolutely. Uh, so just before we wrap up, you've got a book out um, and at your clinic, do you do, obviously people can come and see you in person. Um, do you do remote telemedicine as well? I do stat. I've got Skype patients all over the world. So yes, I do Skype consultations, phone consultations and in clinic. And yet yeah, my book um, is uh, available on my website. That's www.limenatural.com. And that's about, about the, the treatments that I do offer for um, Lyme. It's got a lot about the herbs I use and why I use them and so forth. And um, I'm writing my second book that's on stealth infections, more about the stealth type viruses and other parasites that can affect patients that have these sort of chronic symptoms. Fantastic. When's, uh, uh, that putting pressure on you, when, when's that expected to be published? don't know. I'm hoping, I'm hoping early next year. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. And you're about to speak this weekend uh, at Melbourne at the A4M conference with uh, Dr. Andrew Heyman and myself. So I'm really looking forward to um, hearing from Dr. Heyman and, and, and also yourself and uh, delivering all this information about energy and fatigue and, and piecing all together. And I think there might be some, yeah, different views. Andrew might be a bit more of the systematic and the test where um, you've got the more perhaps sort of, you know, naturopathic philosophy and Hopefully I'm probably somewhere in between with a bit of geeky science in there as well. So I'm really looking forward to, uh, to that. All right. Well, um, thanks again for your time. It's been really great to show how an experienced practitioner, you know, I think what really jumped out at me is, yes, you're aware of all these tests and uh, measures and treatments, but also granted that um, picking and choosing when to use it, got confidence in um, natural medicine. And I think I sense that confidence and that, um, a surety comes through in your consultations that a lot of patients probably come in overwhelmed and maybe you're actually describing some um, supplements as well because they've got all these tests and, and supplements. <laughs> so I think, yeah, you're a really good beacon for um, patients to, to navigate through and um, maybe even a, using a simpler protocols to regain their health. Absolutely. Thanks for your time, Mina. Thank you so much, Nathan. Thank you for listening to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. Find us on iTunes and leave a review. Join our practitioner-only Metagenics Facebook group to be informed of new podcast releases, keep up to date with key industry updates, and more. Visit metagenics.com.au to find useful links and resources relating to this podcast and sign up for our e-newsletter.